Welcome back to Perspectives on Psilocybin, the science and mysticism of magic mushrooms. In this episode of the podcast, we're going to be talking with somebody who is considered an, an authority figure in the underground and in the online psilocybin and general mushroom community. I've been in contact with her for a little over a year now, and my conversations with her leading up to this point is a big reason of why I wanted to present the podcast this way um, through the perspectives of many fields. So she is a mycologist, which is essentially someone that works with mushrooms through their biology, the genetics, and also how they grow. So she is a mushroom grower. And a lot of times the that sort of field of growing mushrooms involves all kinds of mushrooms, including the ones that are the focus of this podcast. And she is one of the most passionate people about this subject and about anything that I have met in my life. And I have had wonderful conversations with her. And I think that the discussion we had for this podcast was fantastic. And I think she's a really good representation of the underground community that is not connected to academics in any way. Um, A lot of these mycologists are amateurs, as in they might have gotten a college degree, but they are usually by no means doctorates. And they kind of just figured out the science for themselves and have been documenting and doing their own experiments and figuring out what works for them. And that is the lane that she's in. She has a really rich history she will go into. She's an Afghanistan vet and she was also a first responder. And I think you'll really find how she sees this subject to be interesting. So first I started with just asking her what she defines the underground to be. Who is a part of the underground? What kind of things are they working on? And just to generally talk about what they are. The underground is all the OGs, the the people that I've known for 20, 25 years um, that were the ones that went out and found uh, psilocybin in the wild and, you know, started working with phenotypes. I mean, just everywhere, you know, tons and tons of, um, well, not tons, uh, you know, dozens of different strains that were wild that before publishing, you know, before research was being published, you had these folks that for one reason or another, whether it was just for tripping purposes, um, they felt better for an extended period of time. These were the folks that literally started this movement. They took it upon themselves to not be tampering with what was, um, wanted to keep the mushrooms what they were. When, when you talk about the underground and you talk about these folks, it's it's the people who were willing to take the risk, both legally and with their reputations, I guess, that basically said, I'm going to do this no matter what. My uncle happened to be one of those people. So we've got those folks that started it, that some of them were doing 
things just like genetics. They were solely focused on genetics. Then you have the people that were solely focused on yield. And then you had people that were solely focused on substrates. You know, you had all these different components. There were people like me that were into the genetics and into the nutrition and the agar, you know, and changing those things and documenting and watching how these strains progressed on different types of food sources. Those are the people that I'm talking about that are the underground. Some of them very hidden. So as you can probably tell, this is a different kind of underground than what Dr. Billings was talking about. This is not the chemists that are making new analog compounds of psychedelics in the lab. Instead, this is the people that are specifically focused on the mushrooms and the psilocybin and the cultivation of them and the use for them in therapy. And But what she is mainly concerned about and the people in her group are the genetics of the mushrooms not going bad. And what that means is preserving the base strains of the mushrooms that were found in the wild. So not having them get convoluted by a bunch of people just sort of mixing them together. They want to keep it how it was, like she was saying. So this is sort of some of the work that they do in that area. But it's people like me who give a shit about the base. If we don't start on a good foundation, the whole thing is going to topple. Because it comes back to humans have this amazing ability to make things go extinct. We have just as much research to do when it's brought to us and we know region, we know conditions, we know um, what they have been called by the indigenous peoples of that area when something new is discovered. But when it comes into our community, we have to make sure that what is coming into our community isn't already, the DNA isn't already there somewhere. And there are people in this community that do that. We want to ensure that this is brand new DNA that we have never seen before. Along with growing the mushrooms and studying the mycology, the different strains and species of psilocybin mushrooms, people also have clients that they work with as well. And it's usually in a specific area that is sort of relevant to them or something that they struggled with or just a topic that they need um, that they feel that psilocybin can help with. There are people that are focused on dementia and Alzheimer's in my community. There are people like me that are focused on veterans and first responders. There are people that are focused on solely mental health, people that are solely focused on eating disorders, addiction, recovery. There, there's so many of us. And then you've got people like me who've been in Afghanistan, who've seen the horrors. And that was just guys being brought in on stretchers into the ER or me going out on medevacs and picking them up. I wasn't there ducking bullets. Um, no, I, I kind of was. I kind of wasn't. Um, I wasn't in fear constantly of my life. So I know what these guys and gals suffered psychologically. And 
because of psilocybin and its ability to, I mean, Liam, I can look down right now and see a guy that I shoveled off the ground into a body bag. I I can see him plain as day, (laughs) but it doesn't terrorize me like it would have 20 years ago. I mean, if I had been on that same plane right at the beginning of 9-11 and was over in Afghanistan, feet on the ground at the beginning of this entire thing, I wouldn't have known the ability that this had to not make me forget, make me able to go through the emotions that are needed to go through to not live it day after day. I mean, my ex-husband and I are still very close. My ex-husband was third special forces group, comes over all the time. Still to this day, I have to go in that spare room when he sleeps over on the weekends because I hear the screaming from my room. Now, you're probably going, well, then why is he screaming? Why is he having an issue? Because we have not found the exact combination of different strains that are working for him. It's gotten better, but it's not there yet. We still have, we're we're working on another strain right now. My, my focus, my laser focus is I want answers from the VA. That's, that's who I'm going after. Um, I want answers why they're still poisoning our veterans, why the 9-11 death toll is still rising to this day. The 9-11 death toll didn't stop with the World Trade Center or the Pentagon or Pennsylvania. It happened every single day of the Afghanistan war. And it's continuing today through the suicide rate. So it's not gone away. She'll go on to tell a story about her ex, who is also a veteran, and his experience with the VA after having started using psilocybin for treatment. And it is very similar in how it goes to the one that Dr. Billings told about one of the people he knows and them going to a therapist and just the trust that people place in their own medical doctors and their unwillingness to stand up to them and the consequences of that. You know, my ex, my ex was told by the VA here because he was being open about what he intended to do. He wanted to be pulled back off of the sleeping pills and because they don't work and wanted to be pulled back off of the mood medications he was on and flat out told his PCM um, that he was going to start a psilocybin regimen. And the doctor that's treating my ex-husband flat out told him, if we find that in your piss, you will be banned from getting care at the VA. Well, huh, thank God for us, it doesn't show up in piss. <laughs> and I told, I told Joe, throw in his face, throw in his face the reason that you wanted information on how to taper off of these sleeping pills and this, you know, these mood stabilizers was because you're going to psilocybin and that's it. 
I mean, he does take one one pain medication that's very, very, uh, it's gabapentin, which is good. Um, it's not a bunch of garbage. Um, and he's on 800 milligram Motrin twice a day. Because he was like, okay, if you're not going to give me the Medicaid, the, the, the information on how to taper myself off of this, I will figure it out and I will do it myself. And the next time I see you, I will say, don't refill my prescriptions because I don't need them. But the base of what I wanted to get to is I know the VA gets paid by the drug companies to dispense as much garbage as it does. I don't know. I don't know that the doctors specifically are being compensated, gifted, whatever you want to call it. Um, but I know that the VA is definitely getting a good chunk of change. And that's why, I mean, I, I don't know that the doctors aren't being told by administration to dispense all this garbage, or if they don't dispense a certain amount of it, that they might lose their job. I, I don't, I don't know. All I know is that absolutely positively, um, there's a lot of money being uh, shuffled through the VA so as you can tell, she is extremely passionate about this stuff, is extremely passionate about getting veterans the treatment that she feels like will work, which is through psilocybin. And so next, I'm going to have her talk about how she got into this and um, how she sort of rediscovered her identity after getting injured and um, not being able to help people after her injury, which by the way, some context for the injury. She was a firefighter and she had to crawl in a crawl space to put out flames under the house. Little did she know above her was burning as well. The floor collapsed on her neck and she was under the weight of essentially an entire house for like over 10 minutes. And they finally got her out and resuscitated her but she had severe damage, obviously, to her neck. And that's why she talks about having a metal neck, but I'll just let her tell it. I mean, I was in excruciating pain after my accident, excruciating. My neck is 70% metal. That's why I can't turn my head. If I, if I turn, I have to turn my entire body. Um, the... Um, when I got hurt, I lost who I was. I, I mean, literally lost who I was. I was a firefighter and a paramedic. That's what I identified as. That is truly who I was. And it all stopped in an instant. And I wasn't able to help people anymore. I wasn't able to be there at a time when they needed the most help they probably had ever needed in their life. When that all stopped, the part of me that... No, could you please bring me that that ginger ale, though? Okay. Um, I've got such a great song. Mom, do you want me to make you anything for dinner? <laughs> um, the, the part of me that was the most damaged, thank you, my love, I appreciate you, was the part of me that could save a life when it was necessary, prevent somebody from dying. And I lost that. I I couldn't do that anymore. And 
I have never, never been suicidal, thank God. Um, but there came a time in my rehabilitation where I heard these little boys playing out in the back room and I had been in bed jacked up on all kinds of opiates, all kinds. <laughs> uh, and the thought crossed my mind. I wonder if it would matter if I was here or not. That single thought terrified me so much. I started yelling for my ex-husband and he, I said, get me out of bed, get me out of bed, get me I, I got to get out of this bed. And he's like, you're in pain. I said, I don't care. Get me out of this bed. And and I refused to get into that bed unless I was sleeping. I called my uncle, just absolutely crushed. And he goes, what are you doing? He goes, the medicine has been in front of you this entire time. And I'm like, what? What are you talking about? He goes, it's been in front of you this entire time. And why you're using all that other stuff to heal yourself and to relieve your pain, I don't know. And he literally showed up here with a pound of mushrooms. And that's that's when this really got propelled into, wait a minute. I can still save lives. You know, I can still tell people there is hope for pain relief. I mean, I'm a, I'm a walking, breathing, living example of that. And there are strains, in my opinion, that are far more powerful for pain relief than even opiates are. And they last longer. It's my fear. And I... I do still see the guy I had to shovel up off the asphalt in Afghanistan. I do still see the guys being put on the medevacs with us that we knew weren't going to make it. We knew that they weren't going to survive that plane or that, that helicopter ride or people that are brought into the ER that are just, there's no way they could survive. I still see them. And my fear is, I won't be there to help the ones who, and I don't want to say just lost a leg or just lost a limb. That's a, that is a terrifying thing. I can't imagine. But because they lost that, they lost this too. And I cry at night because I'm like, I just, I feel there's, there's part of me that feels like a failure, truly, that I don't get the help to these people that my voice is not loud enough. And maybe, maybe it's getting this paper written. And although it's for the academic community, it could filter into the underground community. Um, it's the numbers of people every day that I didn't make it to, or we didn't make it to, that it just, it just kills me. Next, we go into the sessions that she actually has with veterans and what kind of impact it seems to have on them and what she thinks about the mushroom and how it may actually be the thing driving the effect, which is counter to what all of the previous guests have said. I meet with groups of veterans, groups of them, and some of the veterans have gone on to be cops, but they're there because their mental health is more important than them fucking up and shooting somebody because they have a flashback. You know, I wanted to start doing research and I actually had somebody doing it for me for a while on the incidents of shootings of citizens by police officers and what percentage of those police officers were veterans. 
because I, I've had guys straight up tell me that sometimes it's scary that they wear a gun all day. That's terrifying. You know, when you have a cop tell you that he's worried about carrying his service weapon, uh, that's, that's the point. You get them help and you get them help fast. And that's why I kind of start out with the amount that I do with most of the veterans. And they're like, God damn, I feel this every day. I'm like, good. <laughs> How's it working? You know, is it is it making a significant change? Is it reducing your fear? Is it allowing you to deal with what you had to do over there? Is it giving you the tools to know that that fact will never change? What you had to do or what you saw will never change, but it's given you the ability to break it down into sections to deal with it. It never goes away. But somehow psilocybin has this uncanny ability to comfort us when nothing else will. I've had guys tell me, you saved my life. And they're crying. These are grown ass men. And I tell them, I did no such thing, honey. It's not me. It's the mushroom. Now, my ability to know what could work for them is definitely there. But that's through years and years of documenting it. So like I said, this is not the academic point of view, but I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. And I think this is what this podcast is for, is to highlight the many perspectives that there are on psilocybin and the mysticism behind psilocybin. So next, after she was talking about the psilocybin regimen, I asked her to sort of talk about what that usually entailed and just a reminder here, disclaimer for any medical advice, we are not medical professionals, and she says this too, but nothing we are giving is advice. We're just simply talking about it. Okay, this is where it gets tricky for me. Because I'm not a doctor, because I'm not, basically I'm not allowed to give dosing information that could get me into a hell of a lot of trouble. So what I tell people is the way things usually, the way you'll get a benefit from this usually is with a large dose at the beginning. Now, if you've tripped before, that may be a larger dose than most other people. And most other people start out with like three grams. If it's their first trip, that's that's about an eighth. They, they'll usually toss down an eighth. Um, and if, if you've never tripped before, that's plenty usually. And if they're good, if you're getting them from a reliable source, um, and then I tell people the effects of the mushroom usually have a two to three day effect with them where everything's brighter. Your cognitive abilities are greater, um, and you're much more aware. Now, you don't want all of that to go away. You want to catch it when you start microdosing. So usually 0.20 a day for three days uh, after. Well, okay, so you do a macrodose, wait three days, start with 0.20 and go three days and stop for four. The next week, you go for four and stop for three. 
you flip-flop that schedule back and forth. If you notice that you are less depressed, uh, less anxious, less, or, you know, you're noticing the benefits, you don't need to go higher. And don't, don't. If you notice that during that four days consistently for a month that you feel great, you can actually back off from that is considered a high dose regimen or high dose microdosing regimen. There are a lot of people that do 0.10 every day. And I kind of have my disputes with that. Um, I, I tell people, if you're noticing that you're okay and you could back off of the microdosing regimen and just do macrodosing, then do that because it benefits you so much more. Now, when I had all that pain and stuff and my uncle brought me a pound of mushrooms, the thing that stopped the opiates and relieved the pain was doing a gram a day every day for like three months. And it did. It blocked the pain. It helped me function. My physical therapist asked me what the hell I was taking that made it so much easier for me to do. I had a huge problem with my right hand and I would drop stuff all the time all the time and when it was probably about week three that I could pick up grasp that ball and literally squeeze it to a point she knew I had enough power in my hand and my neck wasn't wasn't sending the signal to drop stuff um and she noticed uh, from my pupils from the way I was acting I don't know that I wasn't on opiates she could literally tell that I was not taking medication and there don't get me wrong there were hard days during that physical therapy hard days where I wondered if I was going to walk again not use a cane stand upright be able to at least lift my neck a little bit to look up I have no problem looking down you know or looking side to side getting some range of motion back um there were days that it fucking sucked it just did um but I'm utterly no (laughs) I know I was gonna say I was convinced I know that it was the mushrooms I know so it seems like in her experience anecdotally Microdosing works for some people and it others for it doesn't for others. And this could be reflective of the one study on microdosing that found it to only be a placebo effect. Um, but again, we really don't know. And maybe it helps some people with the integration of the trip into their lives so that they can sort of get that mindset, even if it's in the slightest. Um, but there's no conclusive evidence on the microdosing. Here, she goes in depth on how the effects of psilocybin seem to have helped her mom in her worries about dying from dementia and just getting older and losing her cognitive abilities and seem to have some other remarkable effects that are, of course, just a correlation, but still interesting. 
Um, and I'll let her talk about that. I dosed my mother. And at first, and, and she, it was because she's terrified. She was terrified of dying from the same thing my grandmother died from, which was dementia that went into Alzheimer's that, and she was gone. My mom was terrified of it. So I started just simply dosing her with lion's mane twice a day, every day of the week. And I noticed on our phone calls that she wasn't saying, um, she wasn't looking for words. She was completing sentences. She wasn't getting frustrated and stopping what her thoughts were anymore. And I knew at that point, okay, I know that she's been on this long enough that it is doing what it's supposed to be doing. And I don't trust my mother's body to anybody else. That mycelium, that lion's mane mycelium is from lion's mane that I have gathered all around me. I know what I'm putting into my mom. I don't trust anybody else to do it. <laughs> so about 90 days into it, I was like, okay, I'm going to tell my mom that she needs to send me a pill organizer. And there was a, a very specific reason for that. I didn't want her getting the psilocybin versus just the lion's mane mixed up. I didn't want too much psilocybin. I didn't want to take the risk. My mom was going to start tripping. I did not want to take that risk. Um, and I started my mom off on 0 0.05 once a day, every day. And I told her that when she opened her pill organizer to put her other pills into it, do not take those out. Leave those exactly the way I've put them in there. And she didn't ask questions at first. <laughs> so I documented over the course of the next three weeks, the conversations I was having with my mom, the reactions to questions that I was asking her and um, noticing that she was really coming around. I said, okay, now I'm at the point, I think we can go to either 0 0.10 or 0 0.15 a day and only do it three days a week. So I upped it to, I went to 0.15 immediately. And it was, I did it for four days a week. She would be off for three days a week. But with her, I wasn't doing it in succession. When I, when I pulled back the amount that I had been doing, the 0 0.05 a day every day to 0.15 three times a week or four times a week, it, it was spaced out. It wasn't in succession. And I watched my mother at one point, my dad came to me and, and it wasn't, it wasn't, I wasn't questioning my dad. I wasn't asking him questions about what my mom was doing, how she was living. My dad said, you know, she, it's really, it's really interesting. And I said, what pop? And he said, your mother started painting for some reason. I'm like, what? <laughs> What are you talking about? Mom's never picked up a paintbrush or had a canvas in her life. What are you talking about? He goes, well, you remember Grandpa Bill when he turned like 65, all of a sudden he started painting. He says, I think that's what it is. I'm like, oh shit, that's not what it is. <laughs> so 
I noted that down. I noted a lot of different things I was picking up here and there. When I went to visit them, my mom pulled me aside. She said, you know, I know my mom's always known about the psilocybin. I don't hide things from my parents because were I to go to jail for this, there needs to be somebody to take over my children. (laughs) You know, I've got things, I've got safety nets in place. Um, my mom pulled me aside and she said, I don't, I don't want anybody to know this because she said, I don't want anybody to think I'm crazy. I said, mom, what's going on? And she said, does this lion's mane mycelium have any effect on hearing? And I went, oh my God, my mom is having auditory hallucinations because I'm overdosing her. You know, I'm giving her too much. And I thought, uh-oh. You know, and I said, well, wh- what, what's going on, mom? She says, she says, I noticed that I had to keep turning my hearing aids down. Everything was too loud. And I went, what? She says, yeah. She goes, I quit wearing them about five weeks ago. I went, oh. I said, Ma, I said, tell me about this. <laughs> because I had never heard of psilocybin or lion's mane having any effect on hearing at all. And so I started documenting exactly what she had told me. And I said, Ma, I said, I've got to be honest with you. And she goes, I know you've been dosing me with psilocybin. You don't have to tell me that. I went, oh crap, here I thought I was hiding it from her. She knew and she wasn't afraid of it. I wish I had had the, I wish I, I, I look back at it now and I wish I had had the trust, the trust in what I had been doing for so long and knowing my shit well enough that I was willing to dose my own mother. My mom hadn't told my dad that I was, that she suspected I was dosing her with psilocybin. She never revealed that to my dad. And I know why. My dad was a juvenile prison warden for 35 years. Not the most understanding person on the face of the planet, especially when it comes to illegal substances. I think she was afraid that he would take it away from her because it was on that vacation that my mom and I sat my dad down and told my dad that my mom was being treated with psilocybin and it wasn't strictly a gourmet mushroom anymore. And my dad said, I kind of figured that was what was going on. So I wish I, I, looking back, I wish I had had the trust in myself to just straight up tell my mom or ask my mom if it was okay to start dosing her with psilocybin. So in that story, which was pretty funny at some points, but also pretty amazing to see those changes in her, especially the painting, um, kind of makes sense. But then again, that would seem like a really, really good thing for older adults to have is something like painting to occupy them in some sort of creative endeavor. But in that story, you also heard about how she gave her mother lion's mane. Now, lion's mane is a culinary, but also a medicinal mushroom that has been found in some studies to increase neuronal strength and connections and just generally increase neuron, the health of your neurons. This is where you can really see the overlap of the mushroom community and also the psilocybin community. 
they really aren't mutually exclusive and they come as a whole package most of the time, unless you're more in the psychedelic community and magic mushrooms are just one of the many. But I think it's really interesting to see that overlap and how it's more about the holistic healing and medicinal benefits of entheogenic plants and fungi. Another thing I wanted to ask her was about trip sitters. Are they essential or is it only for people that really need the therapy? Because especially in the underground, it's not just people that have major depressive order that are tripping on magic mushrooms. It's obviously also the people growing them. So I wanted to see what she thought about this and like the level that someone would have to be trained to be a trip sitter. Because Dr. Billings was talking about that it has to be a real integration therapist, at least for the therapy. So I wanted to see what she thought about this, especially considering that she believes that the mushroom is really the thing doing the work. For veterans and first responders, yeah. For people, I mean, for people who have other traumas other than war, I would say it depends on how bad that trauma was. You know, if somebody comes to me and they tell me that they were sexually assaulted, that they got cut up by the dude or the chick that was assaulting them, yada, 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 I'd say, listen, I recommend you have somebody with you that is trained, not just somebody that's there, somebody that's trained to know how to bring you down or how to get you through that. You know, if it's, if it's somebody that is doing it for just like, let's say seasonal affective disorder. No, I'd say you'd be okay. If, if they don't have traumas, if they don't, you know, if they don't have anything significantly psychological in their history, I would say, have fun, <laughs> you know, have a good time uh, because this will definitely kick the shit out of seasonal affective disorder. There are so many applications. I truly believe that none of us are without damage. None of us. There is always something in one's life that they could benefit from the use of psilocybin. Now, I'm not talking about daily maintenance. I'm not talking about um, even bi-monthly use. I'm saying one time, try it. If I didn't think the general populace would benefit from psilocybin, I wouldn't say anything. But I truly do. There's something about it that is saying, for Christ's sakes, do it once. At least do it once get an understanding. It, I, I truly believe that if everybody at least tried mushrooms, a lot of the crap that happens on this planet wouldn't be happening. A lot of the ego, a lot of the anger and frustration and the things that are getting in the way of a more peaceful place, you know, I, I just believe it would help. Like Dr. Billings and I, she also had something to compare the experience to, which I think is a really good comparison and a lot of people would sort of get right off the bat. And somebody came to me and after watching Fantastic Fungi said, I don't want to sound stupid. I said, what's up? And it was at one of these veteran meetings. He said, is it like Avatar? 
<laughs> I started laughing. I went, fuck, yes, it is. I was like, that is the best reference that I have ever heard of. I'm like, holy shit. Yes, it connects you and allows you to absorb from the earth a lot of healing ability. And it, I'm not talking about the hallucination state where you might feel like your feet are going into the ground. I'm talking about and physically ingesting that connection. And it, it has the ability, if we let it, to make connections that weren't there before, have understandings of things that maybe had never crossed their mind. I also wanted to ask her how the recent legalization in Oregon and decriminalizations in many cities has impacted her and the underground's work and sort of ease of doing business as far as um, the legal stuff goes. Uh, especially since there has just been a shift in the media and I feel like in the culture to just seeing drugs as more less less of the good and the bad drugs and more of just drugs being drugs and that some of them can have positive effects, uh, including mushrooms. Like me and Glenn talked about with all the news articles, they're painting a pretty good picture for it. So a lot of people, people's minds are beginning to change on it and want to see how that impacted her. Law enforcement is getting to a point where they were starting to get to the point with marijuana. All right, whatever. You know, I think, honestly, we're not what they need to be worried about anymore. It's the fucking fentanyl coming from Mexico that they need to be focusing on. And they are. You know, there's there's much bigger dangers out there than us. We're not a threat. I mean, we're a threat to the drug company, sure, but we are definitely not a threat to the populace as a whole. We're not going to kill people. So I think I think there was a turning point where they were just like, <laughs> who gives a, you know, who cares? also wanted to get an understanding of how her and the underground view the recent legalization and decriminalizations. Like, I was surprised when Dr. Billings said that he was looking for more of the decriminalization. Um, and especially with her being against Big Pharma, I want to see what she thought of that. And just what she said at the beginning about leaving it as it was. What does that mean? for legalization there is a significant part of what you and i are calling the underground that does not want this to become legalized i mean okay wrong wrong statement they do want it legalized but god it's so hard it's they want to undo what nancy reagan did with dare you know, they want just let it be. Don't don't legalize it. Don't make it a thing that taxes can be charged on it. It's just it was it was already there, just like cannabis. It was already there. Just leave it alone. Burn the laws. Just let everybody do what naturally would occur. I think we need to just erase whatever verbiage 
is written wherever and erase it. It never existed. It's not legalized. It's not decriminalized. It's just there. And if you need it, use it. Educate yourself. Get it from somebody if you need it. And that that wording just needs to be gone. Just erase it. I know that'll never happen, but that's where my mind goes, you know? I mean, it's a beautiful thing. Um, And it's so sad that there are a lot of people that would benefit from it and we wouldn't be losing people every day and there might not be so much anger and violence if they and and for people to to i don't know die with fear you know it sucks and as i've sort of referenced before there isn't just one type of magic mushroom many different species and strains um especially strains of the species psilocybe that's where a lot of them uh, originate and that's probably the most popular version of magic mushrooms that you're going to see but i want to see what she thought about like different strains having different effects in the same way that marijuana does um like some of you have like the sativas and you have the indicas that make you more chilled out the sativas make you more creative and energetic apparently and then you have the hybrids that are in between and you just have like thousands of different strains like strawberry cough and uh runts and all of these different strains um and people generally say in my experience that you're still getting high on marijuana but they do have slightly altered effects. So is that the case with mushrooms? And if they are different, what sort of implications does that hold for having a good or a bad trip and just on therapy in specific populations? Does it work better for some mental disorders and not others? How does that go? People like me, people like two of my other friends who have documented golden teacher if you've got anxiety stay the hell away from it you don't want it you know golden halo seems to be the key to a lot of ptsd a lot if you were to give if you were to give somebody with anxiety um suicidal tendencies from afghanistan golden teacher they'd be dead if they started on a microdosing regimen with that specific strain, it would do the exact opposite of what they were hoping for. And these are things that over time, and it's not just my opinion, it's not just what I think. This is literally dozens of people that with one dose have gone through the roof with anxiety that I've documented that I'm like, okay, is as popular as golden teacher is. And as much as that, that name is pumped up out there, it's a dangerous mushroom on so many levels. And again, I hate relating it to a pharmacy, but there are so many different strains that have so many different benefits and drawbacks within themselves that it's just like a pharmacy. Yeah, I can confirm after doing some research, there are a lot of different strains out there with a lot of wacky names, just like it is with cannabis. You know, you've got Lizard King, Jedi Mindfuck, Penis Envy, and like she said, Golden Teachers are one of the most popular. And according to her and 
the people she knows in the underground that is not good for people with anxiety. And that's good information to get out there, especially with a lot of people starting to self-experiment with this stuff. And aside from some research looking at the varying levels of psilocybin in the different strains and the species, because there are very different levels of psilocybin in each of those, there isn't really any research on the effects of the other different alkaloids that are present in the mushrooms and the different strains. So here she kind of gives her take on that as far as uh, what she thinks about academia. I, I don't know of any researcher. I have not seen any publications that have listings of the different cubensis strains and what their potential side effects are or what their potential benefits are. Anything from the academic community. But there's somebody that has already documented 51 strains and knows fairly well what the benefits and side effects are. And sometimes it's a combination of them that is needed, but you got to know what the hell you're doing because if you don't, somebody can have a horrible trip and it's not just an ego death that you got to worry about. I also asked her about how the academic research has impacted them and whether there's any crossover in her area of people that are more in the underground and amateur mycologists and the research that's going on right now. Because even in the Johns Hopkins studies and other academic studies, you still need to procure the psilocybin somehow. And that way is through actually having the mushrooms and the genetic material. So I wanted to get her perspective sort of from that lens. And it's just important to keep in mind that she is not researching in the same way that they are as in comparing the effects of psilocybin in relieving depression by giving them a depression scale before and after and a year and a half after they have their trip. So just keep that in mind as she talks about it. Maybe 15 years ago, we started seeing, we started seeing the influx of interest in what we were doing. And it wasn't by noobs coming in on scene, trying to figure out how we were doing what we were doing. It was the people, the academics that were starting to come in going, hey, what are you doing? And there were a lot of us that were like, nope, sorry. And while she doesn't necessarily want to work with the academic community because she's not familiar with it at all, she also wishes that they could work together on some level. I would, I would love to have somebody in the academic community that I can go to and I can tell this stuff to. I don't, but I have dozens and dozens of people in the underground community that I do share it with and that take what I say, I don't want to say as the word of God, but as a reputable source. And I want her to just sort of clarify her position on the research and what she thought of it and whether it was useful or not. I don't have a problem with research. Like, even though I have the opinion that I do about Roland, I can appreciate the base of what he's trying to do. I am more anti-drug company than anything. That's, I'm anti-drug pro-veteran, pro-first responder, pro-mental health, 
you know, anti-suicide, that, that is, that is my focus. And, you know, I have an absolute passion and absolute love, admiration and hope that what I'm doing now will create sustainability for generations of the future. I was asked very recently to co-write a paper booklet, pamphlet, or the scientific community or the academic community on just what it is that we do and why it's so important and how you get the genetics to stay stable because a lot of these people are working in the lab. And my response to being asked to do that was that's not for me to tell. So she has somewhat of a nuanced position on this, her and the underground. Uh, But I wanted to just sort of lay it out what I understood her position to be and make sure that I was right in that. And what I basically summarized her to her was that the academic research from their view is not inherently bad. And what they're trying to do is get the drug to be used in more people so that it could help more people. But what the effect of the research for specific populations and specific illnesses, just like we talk about with the cancer diagnosis study, you cannot generalize that to people without depression or just like the study with the decreased reactivity in the amygdala. You cannot generalize that to people with depression because you don't know that if they would react in the same way. And I think that is sort of her problem with the research in that she thinks it might only be able to be used for what it is studied and approved for, which would sort of constrain the possibilities of psilocybin for use in a variety of other things. Yes, absolutely. It's not something that needs... Well, I shouldn't say it doesn't need research. Um, It's a double-edged sword. It really is. Um, While I believe that a lot of the researchers have very good intentions, I, I actually think that research is bringing awareness and people are getting curious. Like, why are they studying this stuff? Oh, I can vote. Well, I can grow this. Holy crap. Okay. I'm going to do, I'm going to try to do what they're doing. You know, so it's bringing an awareness and a curiosity forward. Um, but like I said, it's like putting a makeup on a cow. Why? When it just should be there. Now, while I say it should just be there, there needs to be education, awareness, you know, oh, and we don't need an entire populace of people tripping and not knowing what the fuck to do, you know, it, that's, that, that could potentially be a dangerous thing. And finally, she's going to leave you with just her overall thoughts on psilocybin and its potential for use in society. I know that, um, there's a lot of, there's a lot of loss. There's, there's a lot of loss that doesn't, need to be happening i'm not i'm not saying liam i'm not saying that psilocybin would save every single one of them that that is pompous that is you know um inflated and it's not a true statement at all i don't know that it would help every single one of them it but i definitely know that it would 
make a huge impact. With that will be the end of this episode. I really, really want to thank her for coming out of this podcast. Um, I know, like she said, she doesn't hide and she wants to get her voice out there, but I really appreciate her because she is just really passionate and inspiring with her story and how she has helped so many veterans and um, the other people in her underground doing their own work. Um, I really think it's good work, especially preventing those base strains from going extinct will especially be an important part of remembering the culture and remembering what it used to be used for in the rituals and ceremonies of ancient cultures. But that is the final interview of the podcast. So if you made it this far, I hope that you've been able to see some of the things that I tried to highlight as far as the differences and the perspectives on psilocybin that each of these experts in their respective fields have. And I just think it was really interesting to look at those because they each seem to have their own good reasons for holding their position. And they're not a whole lot different, but once you get into the nuance of it, you can see um, where their different fields influence their views. I will also be adding one conclusion episode to this podcast and where I talk about sort of just the process of creating this thing and just a podcast in general, um, reflecting on the journey and also just talking about the experience some more and um, some of the things that I feel like I have learned um, from this experience of making the podcast. I've got one last shout out or thank you to make, and that's to Professor Gillis or Roger Gillis, who advised me on this honors project and actually connected me with Chris. So he got me an interview for this podcast and also our discussions throughout the semester of just the direction that the podcast is going in and the way to structure the podcast and just the discussions that we had regarding psilocybin throughout the semester were really instrumental in the way I made this podcast. So thank you, Professor Gillis, for advising me on this. But for now, I just hope that whoever's listening has at least gained some understanding of psilocybin and the different perspectives on it and that next time the topic comes up that they have some interesting points to discuss uh, whether it's the experience or some of the scientific studies 